Well, good morning. My favorite pastime, by some margin, is reading. I love to read, and I love books. In fact, I have a condition which I have decided to share with you this morning. The Japanese have a word for it, tsundoku, which means the pleasure of owning more books than you can possibly read in a lifetime. <laughs> On top of owning arguably a few too many books, I very rarely reread a book, even if I loved it. I keep it if I loved it, but once read, its role thereafter is to sit on a shelf so that I can look fondly at its spine from time to time. But here's the real confession. I do actually take some pride in not rereading books. So many books, so little time. <laughs> it's all very well, of course, until you get to the Bible, where not rereading is simply stupid. <laughs> so you'll be relieved to hear that I do make an exception for the Bible. The passage we're looking at today is one of those which is all too easy to skip over as an entertaining, if rather confusing, interlude. So let's have a look at it. I've asked Jane, where's Jane? Oh, there she is. I've asked Jane uh, to read it for us, and post-Advent and last week's excellent vision casting from Jim, which I strongly encourage everyone who wasn't here last week to listen to, we're now back in Luke, chapter 2, verses 39 to 52. And for those of you who like titles for notes, um, I've entitled my talk, What Were You Thinking? <laughs> Where are you? <laughs> okay. You're not that tall, lovey. Okay. Just... Okay, sorry. I had to be a pantomime. <laughs> okay, Luke 2, 39 to, 40, uh, to 52. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they travelled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. 
But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jane. When last spotted in Luke, Mary and Joseph had taken Jesus to be presented to the Lord and had encountered both Simeon and Anna in the temple, both of whom recognized Jesus as the Messiah they had been waiting for. In the first two verses of this passage, we're told they then head home to Nazareth and get on with life. It is only in Matthew's gospel where we read of their flight into Egypt, undertaken because Herod loses the plot. Sorry, Herod, not Herod. Whoever <laughs> Muhammad al Herod loses the plot and decides bravely, stop, stop it, <laughs> to murder any boy under two living in Bethlehem or its vicinity. They stay in Egypt until Joseph is told by the angel of the Lord that it is safe to go home. So here's a small aside. We will all have come across doubt expressed as to the veracity of the Gospels because they, quote, say different things. I certainly used to hear this argument often, predominantly, to be fair, out of church circles. Well, ask any ex-policeman called Toby, and they will tell you that one of the reasons to acquire as many witness statements as possible to a crime is that one person will major on one aspect of what they saw which stuck out to them, and the next person will major on another. Memory differs from person to person, sibling to sibling, friend to friend. Put together, the statements add up to a clearer overall picture. This is common sense. The Gospels emphasize different things for various reasons. People study all this for years and get degrees in it and everything. (laughs) So we won't go into it all here. Suffice to say that the fact the Gospels don't always say the same thing is not a weakness, it's a strength and an aid to better understanding. Self-evident to some, but possibly not to all. End of aside. Interestingly, this short passage is the only one in the four Gospels which talks of an incident in Jesus' childhood as opposed to his birth, so I'm very glad it's there. Perhaps we owe it closer attention precisely because it's the only one. It is, on the face of it, a baffling passage because an initial reading can make Jesus come across as a thoughtless, rather arrogant brat. Until being invited to talk on this passage, I confess I hated reading it because I didn't know how to square it with Jesus' lordship and divinity. So, as with other uncomfortable scriptures in the Bible, I swept it under the carpet. I can no longer do this, so please join me in my journey. Mary and Joseph were both law-abiding and religiously very observant people. We've seen that already several times in the previous chapter, where they do all they are expected to do in terms not only of their faith, but also legally. They make the journey to Bethlehem in the first place to take part in a Roman census, not a Jewish festival. As they do every year, they spend Passover in Jerusalem, which is several days' walk south from Nazareth. After the festival, they head home and discover after a long day's walk that Jesus isn't with them. Back they go. That takes a day. Then they spend a day looking for him, and lo, there he is in his father's house. 
Apparently, there is some discussion as to whether the three days mentioned in verse 46 of this passage include the day heading home and the day heading back to Jerusalem, or whether it was actually five days, two traveling from and to Jerusalem and three looking for Jesus in the city. Why this should matter is entirely beyond me. (laughs) All I know in my capacity as a mother is that I would be losing my mind after three hours, gibbering after three days, and I'd probably be dead after five. It was just a very long time. Let me state something we all know to be fact. It is a truth universally acknowledged that Jesus did not grow up in the West Highlands of Scotland with a West Highland mother. or more broadly, with a Scottish mother. I confess I have entertained myself hugely by imagining this encounter taking place between my mother and Jesus. (laughs) Where have you been? (laughs) Hissed through clenched teeth so as not to make a scene in public. Didn't you know I do not answer back and do not take that tone with me, young man? Any tone, by the way, is inflammatory. Whether conciliatory or otherwise, Jesus opening his mouth to respond at all would have been his first mistake. Possibly his last. Who do you think you are? That was my favourite. I like that one. (laughs) So in human terms, what we see here is a complete breakdown in mutual understanding. Not an uncommon occurrence between parents and children, especially teenage children. Mary and Joseph cannot see any justification whatsoever for Jesus having having chosen to do what he did. And verse 50 makes it clear They did not understand what he was saying to them. With the glorious benefit of hindsight and the wonderful clarity which is afforded all of us when it comes to other people's behavior, we might wonder why Mary and Joseph didn't understand. It's only a chapter ago in verse 33 that the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Then in verse 42, Elizabeth exclaims, Blessed are you among women, and blessed the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Then there's Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Shepherds turn up and worship him. In Matthew's Gospel, wise men come from afar and worship him. And in chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Next comes Mary and Joseph's encounter with Simeon in the temple. Taking Jesus in his arms, he says, chapter 2, verse 30, My eyes have seen your salvation, 
which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Then in verse 34, he goes on, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your heart too. And then Anna the prophet also speaks in verse 38 of the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him, says verse 33. Could Mary and Joseph really, <coughs> sorry, could Mary and Joseph really forget all this 12 years on? It seems unlikely, but I'd say just two things. Your 12-year-old child going missing for three days, the terror that would engender, the guilt that your neglect might have brought about disaster. You're the grown-up, after all. The noise, the Passover crowds, the panic, all of that might well to contribute to forgetting things in the heat of the moment. And secondly, which of us hasn't forgotten something which, had we not done so, would have wholly put paid to our fear? I remember when our girls were little, expecting Toby home in the evening as usual, and his not turning up until several hours after I thought he'd be home. No mobiles in them their days, of course, but we did have a landline, and he had not used it. <laughs> I'd gone through rage, and was at the weeping stage when he walked in, all cheery. When I blubbered the inevitable, where have you been? He saw what a state I was in, and just said very kindly, but Carol, I told you I was going out after work, don't you remember? And suddenly I did. <laughs> this leads me to what Jesus says to his parents in verse 49. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? In his book, Luke for Everyone, Tom Wright, a.k.a. N.T. Wright, formidable theologian and former bishop of Durham, describes this verse as a gentle rebuke on Jesus' part to his parents. And with the greatest humility and respect, I'm not sure I agree. Life lesson. Tone is everything. It is, of course, impossible to know beyond any doubt how Jesus spoke these words. But my guess would be that it was with genuine confusion and bewilderment why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Any other tone would, in my opinion, have resulted in a well-deserved slap, and I'd be Team Mary forever. <laughs> he clearly saw his parents' fear, exhaustion, relief, and distress. But as with Toby's response to my distress that time, the tone was tempered, conciliatory. Maybe Jesus was confused and appalled at having unconsciously caused so much pain. I think he genuinely thought they knew where he'd be. Toby genuinely and quite reasonably assumed I'd remember where he was. In each case, the respond was kind, but somewhat bewildered. Hang on, you knew. Does any of this matter? 
I read one sermon online while preparing for this talk, which sort of tied itself in knots over Jesus' perfection and sinlessness in the face of this seemingly thoughtless, at best inexcusable, at worst swanning off to the temple without telling his parents. Oh, how do we explain this one away? Well, unsuccessfully in that case, as it transpired, so let's see if I can do any better. <laughs> we Christians believe that Jesus is wholly human and wholly divine. God decided that his son, the Messiah, the Savior, our Lord and Redeemer, will be born as a human baby and grow up as a human child in a very ordinary household. It appears from what we see in the Gospels that his ministry doesn't really begin until he's about 30. That's 30 years living a God-centered life. His parents, as we've seen, were very observant Jews, learning what all human beings have to learn, how to live. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, we don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. We know, incidentally, don't we, that being tempted is not sin. Finding another person attractive when you're married is not a sin. Pursuing that person, sleeping with that person, Betraying your partner, there's the sin. I think we read Hebrews 4.15, but sort of skate over the implications because we get hung up thinking of Jesus, our saviour, being tempted in the myriad grubby ways in which we all are. He was without sin because he did not succumb to temptation. How much did Jesus know in childhood of his own divinity? We don't know. Certainly in this passage, we see him submitting to learning in the temple among the teachers, sitting in the temple courts, verse 46 says, listening to them, the teachers, and asking them questions. And in the next verse, his insight and pertinent answers clearly make those same teachers sit up and take notice. But he is still the learner, however striking and insightful his answers might be. So going back to Jesus' response to his parents, I think in his humanity he learned something, that somehow there was a disconnect between him and his parents, and that what he genuinely thought was okay and self-evident really wasn't. What is self-evident to a child with her limited understanding is very far from what parents think is self-evident. But it is not a sin. It is simply a want of wisdom and experience. When I was 11, my family were living and working in Poland. I remember reading a book, loving it, and realizing that it was part of a series. So I wrote to Foyle's bookshop in London and ordered the rest of the series, that's six or seven hardback books. <laughs> Foyle's duly sent the books from London to Warsaw to my father's work address. I vividly remember him coming home with them and how delighted I was <laughs> until Dad gently asked how I planned to pay for them. That had not even crossed my mind. 
Similarly, what becomes clear to Jesus in that moment of encounter with Mary and Joseph is that what in the normal course of events would delight them, his desire to learn more about God and his word, to pursue religious faith and deeper understanding, seems not to be at the top of their agenda at that precise moment. Like any child, his own interests were at the top of his agenda. Jesus lacked wisdom at that point. And I think this is borne out in the very next verses. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And Jesus, it says, grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This was all part of God's plan for Jesus, submitting to earthly authority, learning what we all have to learn precisely so that he could be an effective high priest in touch with our reality. He submitted to earthly parents and in doing so, grew in favor with God. That was what his heavenly father wanted for him. If he grew in wisdom, then it stands to reason that he previously lacked it. Not a sin, it's just a fact. That's a rather long look at this story on a human level, but I think we need to understand that Jesus didn't simply leap from babyhood into adult ministry with nothing in between. I also think it is absolutely deliberate on Luke's part to place Jesus clearly in a human context with human relationships and ordinary human reactions and emotions around him. Any accusations of otherworldliness and being somehow cocooned from the trivialities and irritations of daily life by his divinity, that's certainly an argument I've heard before, are simply rendered ridiculous. He's been there and he's done that. This is one of the ways in which we see he is fully human and fully divine. Of course, we cannot and must not confine Jesus to his humanity. We cannot and must not confine Jesus at all. While I believe that this little story has a huge amount to say to us about the child Jesus and his humanity, there are also inevitably pointers to other things. The passage talks to us about making assumptions which are incorrect. It talks to us about searching for Jesus and finding him, but still not fully understanding him. And it talks of humility and obedience. Mary and Joseph assumed Jesus was with them on the return journey to Nazareth from Jerusalem. Well, he wasn't. Assumptions can be dangerous things, especially when we apply them to the person of Jesus. Tom Wright says when talking about this passage, we may want to reflect on whether we have taken Jesus for granted. If Mary and Joseph can do it, he says, there's every reason to suppose that we can too. Amen to that. I'm sure Professor Wright will be mightily relieved to know that I do agree with him on that one. <laughs> we need to ask ourselves every so often whether we, possibly unwittingly, expect Jesus to rubber stamp what we do. We need to check every now and again as to whether what we might want so passionately for ourselves is in fact what Jesus wants for us. We're good at dressing things up in spiritual robes. I'm his, I want this, and the Bible says he wants to give me the desires of my heart. Bingo. <laughs> Conversely, and my goodness, this is common in Christian circles, is the assumption that his will for us will be diametrically opposed to our own. What do I least want? I least want to serve the Lord in Outer Mongolia. Therefore... 
I must resist my comfort zone and go forthwith to Ultra Mongolia. <laughs> I really tire of comfort zones. Simply living places me outside my comfort zone, I can tell you. <laughs> I've been pushing this down and down, and I'm, I'm conscious that I'm sort of going like this. <laughs> Thank you. It takes two. <laughs> That'll do. Thank you. Thank you very much. Not much longer, folks. We all have to learn not to assume we fully understand Jesus or to think that we ever will this side of heaven. We have to learn to accept the mystery. Here is arguably my favorite verse in the Bible. It brings me enormous comfort and helps put paid to needless striving. It is 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. It merits repeating in a different version, so here it is in the message. We don't yet see, see things clearly. We're squinting through a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then, see it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. Am I saying that it is therefore pointless to try to grow in understanding and wisdom, or even that the study of theology is a waste of time? No. <laughs> of course not, Andy and Jack. Where are they? <laughs> Doctors of theology both, or well, nearly, as far as Andy's concerned. So, um, in fact, this passage teaches us the opposite. We cannot and should not sit on our laurels if we commit our lives to Jesus. We cannot let ourselves think we've got him taped. He loves us unconditionally, and he is also always looking for us to go deeper with him, to search for him spiritually as his parents search for him physically, when his presence seems to us to have dimmed or disappeared in Deuteronomy chapter 31, when Moses is instructing Joshua to go into the promised land, he says in verse 8, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. God is not going anywhere. In my experience, it does sometimes feel as if he's popped out for a minute, but he hasn't. He will never leave us or forsake us, but he might not always be in plain sight. Don't give up the search. When Mary and Joseph found Jesus in the temple after what must have felt like an interminable search, they still didn't understand him, what he had done, what, why he had done what he did, sorry, or what on earth he meant by what he said. But I think we see humility in both Jesus and in Mary in these last two verses. Firstly, Jesus submits to his parents' authority and returns home with them, ostensibly to live with them and learn from them for the next 18 years or so. His humility and his obedience are precisely what enables him to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. 
The same is surely true for us. Do we know, do, do what we have been asked to do. Do it quietly and without fanfare, and we too will grow in wisdom and in favor with God and man. At the same time, Mary treasured all of these things in her heart. Maybe Mary never got the point of this interlude, but she knew it was important. A reflection as in a mirror, perhaps. In spite of all she is told at the outset of Jesus' life, she doesn't know for sure what it all means or how things are going to pan out. How could she? We know the end of the story. It's all helpfully set out for us in Scripture, but she doesn't until it happens, and a sword does indeed pierce her soul. Fortunately, we don't know what the future holds for us either, but we can live our lives holding on to God's promises and learning to trust him more and more. It may well take our whole lives, but it'll be worth it because we will finally know fully as we are fully known. Can we stand and pray? Yeah, that's fine. Could you take over the prayer bit? Sorry. I'll do the first entry. I'll just thanks. Father God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit presence. We thank you that you have promised us that you will never leave us or forsake us. And we also acknowledge, Lord, that sometimes that doesn't seem to be true and it doesn't seem to be happening. But we trust you, Father, because you are Lord. And so, Father, we just want to ask you to come and minister to us now by your Holy Spirit as you love to do. Thank you, Lord, that um, as we were singing earlier, that you reach out to the prodigal. Not only that, Father, but that you, you run towards us. And we thank you for that, Lord. Bless you, Father. Amen.